Hey, Paul, I'm excited to tell you that we are launching a Curbsiders Patreon. Have you heard about this? I I did because I work with you, but tell me more about it. (laughs) All right, Paul. Well, we want to be able to keep offering this great free content, and we're doing things like upgrading our website. We offer transcripts now for episodes, recording new seasons of our miniseries, Teach and Addiction Medicine. The Digest is growing its staff. And Paul, now we're on video. People can see us uh, as we're talking right here. What a treat for our listeners. That's right. So with Cashlack admitting privileges, they're going to get all episodes ad-free. That's the whole back catalog, plus future episodes. And twice monthly, there's going to be bonus episodes where me and you recap a show and answer some listener questions. So people should sign up today at patreon.com slash curbsiders. And uh, you get a whole lot of more of Paul, America's PCP. <laughs> The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders Teach, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kuzhinovskaya. On tonight's episode, we discuss remediation with Dr. Calvin Joe. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? You got it, Molly. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a fantastic conversation with Dr. Calvin Joe tonight. We cover basically the ins and outs, the four phases of the the possibilities for remediation. So everything remediation that you want to know, we talk about it. Dr. Calvin Joe, MD, PhD, is a professor of medicine at UCSF and staff physician at the VA in San Francisco. In his work with the Academy of Communication and Healthcare, he leads workshops on relationship-centered communication, feedback, conflict, and remediation in health professions education. He is co-editor of the books Remediation and Medical Education, A Mid-Course Correction, and Communication Rx, Transforming Healthcare Through Relationship-Centered Communication. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. And if you love the content the Curbsiders family produces, we want to encourage you to think about supporting our Patreon. Your support helps pay for audio editing, transcripts, and lets us create accessible, high-quality content that you're used to. The link and so much more resources like show notes, infographics, transcripts, and more are available on our website. So without further ado, so without further ado, let's, let's get, get to, to it. it. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Chow. Thank you so much for joining us again. We're so happy to be, have you back on the show. Are you okay with us calling you Calvin again for this recording? Please call me Calvin. And actually, there is an there is an interesting change since the last time we did this podcast. I've changed the way that I pronounce my last name now. <gasps> Tell us everything. Did I just say it wrong and you're trying to find a nice way of correcting me? Or? Well, it turns out, <laughs> Some I mean, people uh, say. How, how would you know? Because I haven't told you. Uh, you know, this is from my friend Gurpreet Dhaliwal, uh, yes. who, you know, he used to go by another first name, you know, shortened first name. And then he said, you know, I, I, I remember when I first met him, he said, you know, my name is Gurpreet, but call me, you know, this other thing. And, and everybody called him that for years and finally decided that, you know, he wanted to be recognized for how he normally would be called in India. And I realized that my last name um, is the way I pronounce it is the way it looks in America. But that's not the way my ancestors pronounced it. So I'm I'm, I'm wanting to bring that into my story now. So now I my now I say my last name is Joe. Joe, it's uh, uh, so it's more like a J than a CH. So Joe. Yeah. You can say like J-O-E would be fine, would be close, closer than the prior. Great. I love that, Calvin. <laughs> there we are. I, I will say I'm going through a similar uh, identity uh, crisis where I'm trying to decide if I'm going to start stop going by Dr. K and start going by Dr. Krishnovskaya. But mm-hmm. I find that telling people that everything after the K is silent used to be my go-to. And now I have to figure out a way to say all those letters in a, in a way that's, you know, uh, understandable for people. So I hear you. It, it you know, it's cl- claiming our history, 
right? And I think that's so important in this day and age, not only for us as attending people, but transition <laughs> for our learners as well, who, if you are being called by something that you're not used to, or you're kowtowing to mm. the pre prevalent society, then that every time you hear your name mispronounced or not pronounced the, the way you want, then that's extra cognitive load. And every time you think, well, that's not the way I want it, but that, but I'm, but I'm okay with it when you're really not. Mm. Mm -hmm. That extra cognitive load can then, um, over time, contribute to uh, struggling. How's that for a transition? That was incredible. It was, like, <laughs> that was incredible. Like, I everything. feel like we should pivot the whole recording and just <laughs> talk about identity and, <laughs> and names and pronunciation. Yes. yes, yes. And what that means for us as both educators and you know people who are trying to live out their full identity or be fully themselves. But on a totally fun, kind of less uh, serious note, anything that you've enjoyed consuming, uh, book, movie, show, plays, anything that you want to share with the audience? Uh, yeah, I will say that my latest uh, consumption, la latest delight in consumption um, are some K-dramas. So uh, yeah, um, it started out with, I'm going to plug two. The first one was uh, is called Crash Landing on You. Yes. Yes. <laughs> have watched it multiple times. Obsessed, but go on. Obsessed, obsessed, obsessed. Right. And so <laughs> one of my patients who turned me on to this, uh, he said, "If you like Shit's Creek, uh, you should watch yes. Crash Landing on You." And then I and then he, and then I told him you know, I loved Crash Landing on You, and he said, "If you like Crash Landing on You, you should watch." Extraordinary Attorney Wu, oh, which I is this, I haven't seen that one. Which is this K drama about a uh, a newly graduated law school uh, lawyer uh, who has autism, who has is on the mm -hmm. spectrum, and her way of dealing with um, all of the barriers and the prejudice that comes up by being who she is and the way that because in part she's brilliant and in part because she's quirky and in part she's because she's human, she really uh, overcomes a lot of these barriers and, you know, has the, the most amazing boyfriend ever. Uh, some of the, uh, some of her colleagues who kind of look at her askance come to appreciate her. It's, it's an amazing, amazing arc. So uh, I recommend that. I love that. I also love that you compared Crash Landing on You to Schitt's Creek because I feel like people don't recognize the comedy in K-dramas. Like there's so much moment. I laughed out loud, even reading subtitles and kind of, you know, the, the lighting and the, and the music. I was just like, these are, this is, these characters, these actors are hilarious. And I feel like that's sometimes um, not as showcased as much as the drama, you know? Exactly. Um and uh, you know, Irimes, uh, probably that the the title characters of Crash Landing are you, married. They're actually married and they have a kid now. So that's uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> like North and South Korea, North and South Korea baby now that they have sort of. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah, I don't know how you have so much time to watch TV with how many things you have going on, but <laughs> you know what's so secret? Because the the thing that I was going to plug is also a Netflix show. The secret is that sometimes I watch things on one point five speed or two x speed, mm -hmm. and sometimes I fast forward through storylines like other Netflix shows that I may talk about in a second uh, that I don't enjoy. So sometimes I will kind of like skip past that. But Crash Landing on You, I actually gave it the full 1x. I was watching it at normal speed <laughs> because it was just so good. But you do have well, to, I think, at some point, like have some like magical thinking and like suspend disbelief. Of course. I mean, a, a, a rich heiress flies, uh, hang glides, across the DMZ, in, literally into the arms of a North Korean soldier. Mm, not exactly believable. It's probably happened. <laughs> Could be times. happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> I like your point. Uh, well, that kind of sounds like you are ready for Picks of the Week, Ira. You want to share with us? I might be Molly, but then again, I also wanted to make sure that you had, did you have a pick of the week before I launch into my Netflix binge? <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, 
So a place that I've gone to a couple times lately, and I apologize to the listeners who are not local in the Bay Area, but have you guys been to the Presidio Tunnel Tops? Oh, yeah. Yes. Beautiful yes, new yeah. park. So, beautiful new park in San Francisco. It overlooks the Bay. It overlooks the Golden Gate Bridge. There's this amazing playground that both my 11-year-old and my 3-year-old really enjoyed, which is like a big challenge to find things they both like. Um, just really natural, really beautiful, amazing plantings, just Every step, you're like, whoa, it's a whole new place to explore. And they have food trucks almost every day. So you get great food options. I, was gonna I love t- all of that. I was going to talk about those food trucks. Amazing. <laughs> well, as the exact antithesis to the outside, beautiful nature <laughs> food trucks, I will. my pick of the week is actually the next season of Indian Matchmaking on Netflix. Molly and I sometimes joke that I... Um, don't often give credit to some of the um, more cringe shows that that are out there, and this is my <laughs> moment to plug those shows because if I mean Calvin, you you know Crash Landing, I feel like elevates things. Drama, Indian matchmaking is drama that is. I don't know if it's necessarily elevated. It's more cringy. Like I found myself going, ooh, and certain things that um, this matchmaker, Seema Auntie, would say. I would immediately text my friends and be like, did you just hear that? And they'd be like, yeah, I can't believe it. And so if anybody wants to go through kind of the storylines of people living in London, people living in India, people living actually in the Bay Area, too. Um, There's some folks from Davis. There's some folks from uh, San Francisco in it, um, North Carolina. All It's really all over um, and a focus on London this year or this season. I just laughed and cringed and kind of was like this. There's so much to discuss here. So I feel like um, (laughs) if you want something that you can maybe go 1.5x or 2x on or skip through until the, you know, storylines of the people that you're interested in, it's really interesting. Um, And I just find that they highlight both matchmaking that has worked out from this matchmaker and ones that did not and kind of why that is. There's a lot of topics for discussion. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ira and I were just at a conference together in Austin, and she knows the names of every character on the show. So I do. I do. I actually didn't know there was a new season. Thank you for letting me know. It may have come out approximately three days ago, but it's fine. Uh, it's totally okay. fine. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like Ira has watched all of it already. Oh, well, let's uh, let's jump into the actual topic of our discussion today: uh, remediation, not matchmaking. Uh, we have a case to get us kicked off. Uh, Lauren is a third-year medical student who's meeting with you, her longitudinal coach, as a check-in during her intercession week. She's had a hard time with clerkship year. She says not because of new rotations or environment constantly changing or new teams, but that she's struggling because shelf exams really got her down. Lauren has failed two out of the last four exams, even though she studied for weeks before the test. She tells you she's just not been a good test taker, and she worries about her future board exams. You've also seen written evaluations from her clerkship attendings over the past few months that her clinical knowledge is slightly below where they would expect her to be almost halfway through her clerkships. So Calvin, this scenario feels common. Can we start off with how you define remediation and practically how might you introduce the idea of remediation to a learner? Sure. Um, it's, uh, It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I think we all have had experiences uh, not just with learners who we see might be struggling, but also with uh, you know ourselves. I think if we are completely honest, if every single one of us is completely honest, we have struggled with something at some point during our career. <laughs> and uh, and so this idea of remediation, it has such a negative connotation to it. And yet, if we think about it, reframe it in terms of how can I get through a time in my life when I was struggling professionally, maybe there was some personal aspects of that as well, then uh, then that, to me, ought to demystify it some because we've all had similar experiences. So if I formally define remediation um, as we defined it in the first edition of our remediation book from many years ago now. Uh, It's the act of facilitating a correction for trainees who started on the path toward becoming a healthcare professional and uh, have moved off course. 
And so I think of them as these three different levels. Number one is struggling some and able to make a course correction, either with some help or not. Remediation, which is needing a formal plan or else, and those folks are closer to being dismissed from a program and then dismissal. So kind of those, those several different levels. Um, so when we talk about Lauren's case here, it's um, because she has failed a couple of exams. It's not just a single one-time thing and she kind of realized what it was or got a little bit of extra help and then, and then did better. It's a couple of different exams. And so now we're needing to think more broadly about what are the, what are the places where we can help Lauren succeed in the best way that she can. I've talked a lot. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to go on think, and on because I. You know, no, I, I, I I'm could glad, go on forever. <laughs> I'm glad you broke that down in that way, Kelvin. Because I, before we recorded today, I was trying in my mind to differentiate feedback conversations that are sort of more corrective from actual remediation. And I think you're highlighting kind of that middle ground of, you know, it's not just the one-off that needs a little redirection, um, but really more of a, a pattern that needs a formal plan to get someone back on track. So that's helpful for me. Thank you. And Calvin, you can let me know if this is the time at which we, you know, initiate a role play or a role <laughs> rehearsal. But if we want to, you know, save that juicy part to the end, I guess my question was kind of with Lauren, you're meeting with her and you're, you know, presumably at some point going to introduce this idea or kind of introduce the topic. And, you know, sometimes there's a lot of negative connotation to remediation and wondering with her in your introduction of it, are you kind of framing this as an opportunity for growth as opposed to like a referendum on her and kind of how do you, you are a skillful person. So how do you skillfully do that so that our listeners can try to do the same? Yeah. Um, so I think even before we get to the conversation, we'll get the kind of, don't, don't worry. I'll make you role play. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally on the edge of my seat. You can't tell, but I can't go any further. I will fall off. <laughs> Dude, relax for a little bit because I have, a, I have several more things for contextualization before we get to that conversation. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, I, I think about the four phases of remediation that um, we need to figure out what's going on with Lauren first. All right. Uh, this particular uh a structure is one that I uh, very much like. It is, uh, there are four phases. Identification, clarification, intervention, and assessment, right? So identification is the phase where you're denoting, oh, this person is struggling. Uh, and we're at that stage right now because Lauren has now failed two exams. So then the next step is clarification. In this stage, we basically set up a conversation where we're trying to figure out the different differential diagnosis, so to speak, for why this learner is undergoing these struggles. Uh, the third stage is intervention, where once you have developed this clarification, get, get, gotten a broader sense of what might be happening, then that's where collaboratively develop an individualized learning plan and, and implement it uh, iteratively uh, with coaches, with specific people who can help. Um, and a lot of documentation, I'll get to documentation a little bit later. And then finally, assessment. And there's two levels of assessment. One, one is obviously assessing the learner. Have they made the steps that they need to in order to succeed? And assessing the program, assessing the plan, assessing whether or not we as an institution, whether it's a program or a, or a school um, or a university, have we done the right thing by this learner and thereby uh, for other learners as well? And what do we need to change in that overall process in order to allow further learners to succeed? So, when we talk about remediation, it's not just about a learner and me as the as the attending or and me as the coach. It is a bigger pot. It's uh, whether that learner is succeeding in the context of an institution that maybe supports remediation, maybe doesn't. Uh, so there are many outside factors 
that influence the need for remediation in an individual learner. And sometimes our learners are, um, for, uh, for, for example, in the clarification phase, one of the things that often happens with learners is that there's something in their lives that is happening. A, a parent is ill. They're having a child. It's many different things that can interfere with, quote, performance. And um, if we took those away, they may do fine. But with those extra stresses and cognitive loads, they're they're not. Uh, so that's why the clarification phase is really important. Yeah. How specifically in Lauren's case would you try to, I mean, of course, you know, hopefully you have a relationship with her. You can try to see if she's comfortable sharing those personal things. Do you also reach out to you know, get more background from some of those assessors who wrote comments about her? Or how do you kind of formalize that process? All of that. So, uh, so okay, here we, here we are, Ira. <laughs> you, want to, you want to play Lauren? And It's so happening? It's happening? Sure. You're, you're coming to me. I'm your... I'm your. sitting back, relaxing. <laughs> I did. I did. I actually sat back for a second. But it's okay. I'm ready. I'm so ready. <laughs> so, so I'm your longitudinal coach. You're coming yes. to me. It's come to my attention that you've ha- failed these couple of exams. And... Um, and you're coming to me knowing that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think there's like that element of insight, which I think Lauren has, that maybe not all the people that come to you, Calvin specifically, tend to have. Right. Um, so if, if we recap the feedback conversations, I'm going to use those same that, that same approach here, ask, respond, teach. So I'm going to ask Lauren first before I just say, hey, Lauren, you know, you're, you're failing exams. What's, you know, you need to do better. That That's not what I'm going to do here uh, because, um, because I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do my best to, to help, to, to help Lauren. All right. So you ready? Yes. All right. Lauren, thanks for thanks for coming to my office today. I know it was a I, I know it's kind of a kind of a trip. Oh, Calvin, no, this is great. Thank you so much um, for kind of making the time during this busy intercession week. I know you have a lot of us as your coaches, and so I just really appreciate finding the time to talk about the, what's been going on. I'm uh, I'm delighted to talk to you. Um, uh, I remember last time we talked, you were talking about uh, Indian matchmaking or something like that. Is, that, is he still is still watching that? I am, you know, a, a new season just started, but um, it. I don't worry. I, you know, I only watched it after my uh, surgery clerkship ended, and um, it was actually kind of something I tried to do to make myself feel better because the clerkship kind of ended on a bit of a low note with mm. the with the shelf. Oh yeah, tell me, tell me about the low note. Well, I felt like I was studying. I was doing, you know, I was reading that book that people tell me to read, the case logs or something. And um, I just felt like I got to the shelf exam and, you know, maybe they were just asking more medicine questions than I was ready for. Or maybe there was stuff covered that I didn't see during my rotation. Um, I haven't had medicine yet. And, you know, so after psychiatry, this is the second clerkship exam that I failed. And I'm just really worried because, you know, there's more exams ahead of me. And I don't know what's going on to make me, I mean, I guess I've never really been the best test taker, but it just feels like these two in the last, you know, four rotations feel like it's, I'm worried, basically. I, uh, I'm really glad you're bringing this here. Uh, we want you to succeed to the best ability that you can, and I want to support you as best as I can as well. Um, so I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions to, uh, to figure out more deeply what the struggle might be. It's uh, interesting to me that uh, during the first pre-clerkship phase, you didn't, you, you didn't fail a whole bunch of exams there. So, so I'm interested in a change between then and now. Uh, and wondering, sometimes there are things that are happening on the clerkships that are causing extra, you know, extra worry for you. Or sometimes there are things that happen outside of clerkships that are affecting you. And I'm, I wonder whether there's something like that going on for you. Yeah, that's a great question, Calvin. I mean, I think I've loved third year. I love the team, like team dynamics. I've loved the. Um, actually kind of enjoyed the switches that we've had to do, you know, every few weeks to the different rotations. You're, I mean, I think you um, are making me think more about what could be going on outside of uh, school. And 
you know, living in San Francisco has been hard. Um, I feel like I hemorrhage money all the time. One of the things I have been trying to do in the last three months actually is um, move. So like look for a new apartment. So I will say that I have been on the days off that I have, I've been doing other things. Um, you know, I try to save some time to like read um, those case logs and some of the things that my, you know, fourth year senior students have told me to do. But um I will say there are other things. There are are other priorities for me, um, and maybe that has gotten in the way. But I just, uh, you know, like you said, pre clerkship wasn't. It wasn't the. I wasn't acing everything. wasn't a hundred percent. But I definitely didn't fail. You know, exams like this. So I don't. I yeah. I'm a little little worried about this piece. Mm, yeah, I think it's completely normal for somebody who is you know, in the middle of busy clerkships and also trying to find a new place to live and worried about money, all of those things, it, you know, that can definitely take a toll on you and um, it can show up in performance like this. And so I want to be the best help that I can for you and uh, also want to make clear to you that, you know, obviously you're worried about this. I'm worried about it too. We this If this becomes a consistent pattern, this is not consistent with successful graduation for medical school, right? So we want to make certain that you are, you're, you're, you're successful here. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about it in that perspective. And, you know, I had, I've gotten emailed by the uh, surgery clerkship and the psychiatry clerkship to say, you know, when do you want to reschedule taking your exam? Because we need you to pass. And, um, you know, with the psychiatry exam, it was literally one point. I was one point below, so I, I do think there's there's hope. Um, but uh, I appreciate you reminding me that this is a this is like a passing. Like I have to do this to pass medical school, and yeah. I just I guess I wonder like is anyone else struggling like me, or is like this you know no one else feels this way? Because I just feels very alone. Other people definitely struggle, um, and I want to make certain that you don't continue to struggle. Uh, I know I know it's scary for me to say. Hey, you know this is this is a potential barrier to graduation, and I don't I I don't want to be dishonest about this. You know, honestly, if you if this continues, you know, the the clerkship directors aren't going to want to pass you, and I think that's I think that is something for us to look out for. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do then, therefore, is to give you the support that you need in order to. In order to succeed, in order to succeed, yeah, I guess I will have to take you up on figuring out what that support looks like. Yeah, it, it, it was it was nice to watch both of you. Um, I mean, you, Kelvin, you really did a nice job normalizing it for her, and I I could almost hear some of those same sorts of questions I ask when I'm trying to get patients to open up a little bit more. And I think we're all pretty comfortable with sort of you know, laying it out there that there might be options and just, you know, sort of opening up that conversation to, to help people feel more comfortable. Um, and then I, you, you were pretty hard hitting and saying, you know, you might not pass this clerkship. And I think that's something that learners need to hear, but then you really pivoted to, and we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to support you. So that doesn't happen. Um, so I, I don't know how it felt sitting in your seat era, but I felt a little bit of a like punch in the gut, like, oh, I can't graduate med school. <laughs> well, I did. I also realized I don't have a career in acting, um, despite my best <laughs> my best efforts. But um, no, I really appreciate that, Calvin, because I did that. Like, it was kind of a, we came full circle, like 180. We started off with like you being like, and, you know, this is a requirement in order to graduate medical school. And I'm like, oh my God. Like I might not finish medical school to also being like, and there are steps we can take to help you succeed and I will support you. And that kind of, you know, ending with that, just like Molly said, it really did feel like I wasn't alone in that. And even though, you know, we weren't about to get into like my housing struggles or what other, you know, time management struggles in that exact moment, I felt like this was somebody who's actually listening to me and, you know, cared about my future. Do you find, Calvin, that in people in Lauren's stage that like medical knowledge or test taking tends to be developmentally the source of struggle at that point? Or do you find that like your remediation conversations are, um, you know, medical knowledge is through the entire gamut or, you know, other people are struggling with different things at different times? Yeah. Um, so uh, I was looking at data 
uh, about medical knowledge. So uh, let me just say that medical knowledge remediation is not uh, my my complete area of expertise. I've done it, uh, you know. I and I think this is where specialists in each of the competencies really helps because you can really delve into mm. medical knowledge remediation or clinical reasoning remediation or for me. Uh, interpersonal communication or professionalism remediation, I know th- I know those two fields inside and out, and so I have specific ways of approaching learners who have um, challenges in those areas. And I think it takes experts really in those areas to be able to hone in on what a learner's individual struggles are and help them the best. So really, ultimately, uh, you know, from an institutional standpoint, um, developing experts in each of these competency areas to help learners in the best way possible um, is the is the right way to go. Um, and the other thing I want to say, and I've lost track of your question, but I do want to say one more thing, <laughs> and that is that okay. you know we talked at the top of the show about about identity, and I wasn't planning on this, but. Learners who struggle and know that they're in remediation, that becomes an identity for them. Mm. I know I'm struggling, and uh, and what do I do about that? And oftentimes, uh, there's a stereotype threat that comes with that. So, you know, if I, I'm struggling, I'm going to do everything I can to get out of it. And exactly the behaviors that they shouldn't be doing are the things that they generally do and that mm-hmm. digs them deeper and deeper in the hole so this is this is why this conversation with you um era as lauren uh with showing complete support and validation for what you are going through in the same way that we talked about in the feedback episode you know four to one the validation is what interferes with stereotype threat this is mm-hmm. Even more important in somebody who is uh, undergoing struggles. I was curious about, you know, when you started thinking about asking Lauren about her study habits. And I mean, I have no idea what I know what works for me, but I don't know what would be considered good study habits. Um, In addition to your book, if someone who's listening works at a smaller program or like doesn't have the resources of institutional backup to get these experts in different content areas. Can you think of, off the top of your head, any resources that might be good for people to check out or recommendations of sort of how to build those experts? I know that most institutions have uh, a learning specialist of some kind. Uh, definitely uh, all uh, medical schools that I know of. Mm-hmm. And I think most yeah. health profession schools have access to a learning specialist. And so uh, identifying uh, some of the learning needs that um, that learners have um, is really important because that allows them to succeed. I guess I wonder with this learning specialist that, you know, uh, Lauren or um, fo- most folks that have kind of attachment in academic center have access to, and you mentioned earlier, like medical knowledge is not the area that you typically kind of remediate on. Are you then, is it like there's literally a handoff process where you would tell Lauren, like, I would like you to meet with learning specialists or do you kind of, hand off or include a team for remediation and it let's say it is um for you know we just had an episode on professionalism but like let's say it is professionalism or an interpersonal communication issue how is the kind of you know uh process done by a team or other people separate from just you so there is what what an important question uh ideally there would be resources for remediation program that when a learner um, is struggling, we can say, "Okay, you can go to the, you know, the the procedures remediation specialist, or you can mm, go to the mm-hmm. clinical reasoning remediation specialist." I don't know of really any medical school or residency that has that, you know, ready to go, uh, and uh, and so mo- most folks are doing this voluntarily. Um, so here's where whatever resources you have can be useful. Uh, For medical knowledge remediation, oftentimes peers or near peers can be really helpful Um, uh, because uh, particularly those who you know are doing well and they have told you, these are the study skills I use and you you, you hear them and you think, okay, these are exactly the um, scientifically based study skills that I would want somebody to have. Uh, Mm. Having a near peer 
work with that is really, really important. Um, you know, you can also convene groups where a, you know, somebody who is interested in medical knowledge remediation convenes a group of students. Uh, the the remediation expert or the you know the the fac interested faculty person helps collect the useful strategies that each of the students is doing, and then each of the students has has a support group. That there's some uh, th there's some data that suggests that group that remediation groups can uh, really be helpful. With the caveat that sometimes what happens in those groups is that uh, the, the the struggles compound each other, so you have to. So it has to be somebody who's relatively skilled in facilitation. Um, and uh, the reason that I know anything about medical knowledge remediation is because of this chapter that was written in our in our book. And so I go to it and I think, okay, I think I can talk about these things. I don't know exactly how to um, operationalize each one of them, but. Talking about individual study skills and asking folks like, "Are you taking breaks? Are you interleaving? Yeah. Are you uh, are you asking questions of yourself afterwards? Um, are you covering the 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 answers to um, uh, to the multiple choice exams so that you can immediately come up with what the what the issue is? Can you write a multiple choice exam that will give you a better sense of the uh, of the mastery of the material. So there's many different options, many different avenues where you don't have to have a whole bunch of training. Uh, they kind of make sense and, and you still have to know about them. And fortunately, most of these things are, uh, at least in terms of study skills, there there is now a literature on this that um, that supports the fact that studying in these specific ways really really helps like i used to i used to study just biochemistry and that 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 apparently is not the way to do it you study biochemistry and microbiology and and then and then you interleave um, your learning because you, different parts of your brain are making different connections and th that that way you learn better uh, i Calvin, am can we just pay you for a second because <laughs> i feel like you are a plant um because we have an episode coming up about science of learning oh, and it's talking about all of these so i feel like you are either a kind of wise wizard and knew that this was happening because for all listeners who are like, what is interleaving? Oh. These amazing words, these pearls that Calvin's <laughs> dropping, um, please see our episode on the science of learning where we will go into in-depth things because I just appreciate you, you know, teasing learner uh, listeners with those topics. Science of learning, that's, uh, I think this is exactly relevant to medical knowledge remediation. And I, I think all those study skills, you know, that kind of approach makes a lot of sense. And I can absolutely see that being valuable for learners. I kind of feel like when when medical students or residents get into the clinical side of things, it can be just so broad. Do you have any kind of best practices about how to actually focus on what's important, you know, how to figure out what might be on the test or what might they need to know for a specific um, rotation? <laughs> if if I knew the answer that I questioned, that we wouldn't be here. <laughs> I, th I, th I you know, a lot of it is you know things that are passed down from generations. Some of it is you know QBank questions. Like if you do all of the QBank questions, you're probably going to be able to um, forecast what's going to come at you. Uh, um, it, some of it is you know near peers who have done the exam more recently and they can say, oh, make sure you study this. Uh, I, I think it's, a lot of this is not just about the learning the individual facts. A lot of it is also sociocultural, that you know, having connections with other people who can help you um, not only understand what the exam is going to be like, but also get support from those folks when you need help. Um, it's... Uh, uh, study buddies, uh, making certain that, you know, that you're getting enough sleep and exercise and, you know, you're not, you're, you're studying at times that are most productive for you. I mean, there's all kinds of little um, adaptations that, um, that groups of people can help support um, uh, learners who struggle with. Uh, and also, therefore, which are lifelong instead of just pass this exam. Just uh, mm. what's the what's the term? 
pump and dump. Don't pump and dump, right? It's it's about, you know. May apply to breastfeeding and also <laughs> medical knowledge. Uh, all those things. <laughs> well, Calvin, I feel like this is super helpful because to use your framework of the four phases, I feel like we've passed the identification phase. We've clarified. We're moving on to intervention. Like, what are we actually going to do? Um, and obviously, we'll touch on in a second kind of the assessment phase. I wonder, would it be different if Lauren was an intern and the kind of intervention that we would be planning would be uh, maybe is around organization or trying to help, um, you know, her kind of see more than three patients before rounds. Like if there was kind of a different identification of the struggle, how would, you know, our intervention change there? Very complicated, right? Because it looks that uh, Lauren's phenotype as an intern is that um, she's not finishing her notes on time or, or not pre-rounding in time for rounds. Maybe that's because, uh, so this is all about clarification again. Maybe that's because of a medical knowledge issue. Maybe that's because um, she's, a, she's a woman of color and her patients of color love her and just like, this is the only doctor of color that they see. And so she's spending a lot of time with them and therefore not able to make it to rounds on time. Maybe because her clinical reasoning is slow. Maybe because there is truly an executive function issue, not not being able to organize stuff and just needs needs practice going through that, needs her system. So again, we're back at the clarification phase where um, we need to note this, note that this is happening and then ask and note over time, you know what the specific struggles are uh, in the various in the various possible domains, and then eventually get to intervention. You'd asked a question earlier about the prevalence of medical knowledge um, issues, and I looked this up. It's something like forty percent of medical students um, who struggle have a medical knowledge issue, and something like sixty percent of residents have a medical knowledge issue. That said. It's a lot easier to ascribe somebody who's struggling to medical knowledge than it is to clinical reasoning or executive function or communication or um, or, or, or professionalism. There, there's lots of so this is where the clarification phase is is of utmost importance. I can tell you that you know doing communication remediation, people get sent to me and their communication is fine. It is that their clinical reasoning is is needing help. So this is why this is why I know a little bit about medical knowledge remediation. Why I know a little bit about clinical reasoning remediation is because you know people come to me build as one way, and uh, all of a sudden I, f- I find myself needing to do something else. And for someone like Lauren's coach, you've clarified, you've kind of got this plan together in place. Who do you kind of beyond the people that are directly involved in putting out the plan, who do you involve in, in knowing that she's part of this remediation journey? Do you tell her clerkship directors, the dean, and do you let Lauren know that? Uh, so this is from merely struggling to more of the remediation phase. Uh, remediation. Right, she's in the remediation phase. You have you have a remediation plan. Do you sort of give the person, you know, the attending on her next rounds a heads up or... Ooh. Yeah, you know, how much do you feed that forward? <laughs> yeah, so so all, all all really great questions. If somebody is in a formal remediation plan, then the uh, the dean of student affairs and curricular affairs probably need to know about it, or the program director, or the clinical competence committee, where you know whichever or or uh, the 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 equivalent bodies, um, and. That remediation plan requires an uh, individualized learning plan. It requires documentation every single time you meet with that student. Uh, remediation coach who meet, meets with that learner. It you know documentation has to happen, uh, and you know I'll just forecast one of the one of the things that uh, people worry about most with remediation is well we can't possibly dismiss that learner because they're going to sue us, and the data are very, very clear, both in undergraduate medical education and graduate medical education, medical education that every, there was this really interesting paper that was published about three years ago where they documented every case that went to the U.S. Um, District or Supreme Court or appeals courts um, related to a learner who was dismissed. And 
all of those cases were dismissed except for one. And that one case was where the school did not do due process and follow their rules and document appropriately. That's the only case in the last 40 years that has ever gone to, uh, and that wasn't uh, found, I I think that the result of that wasn't, it wasn't found in favor of the learner. It was just, it was like, okay, school, you need to do a better job with this. So we worry a lot, programs worry a lot about about lawsuits. And if you do the due diligence, (laughs) you don't have to worry about that at all. Um, And that's why the documentation for anybody who's in a remediation plan needs to be done because God forbid it should happen. It happens on a non-zero basis. And so that's where the documentation is helpful and documentation really, it's better for everybody. It's better for the, it's better for the learner. This is where you are. I'm going to show you exactly where, where you are or even better having the learner email you back. Okay. Can you summarize for us what are, what you learned in your, uh, in our session today? And if the learner can summarize that, then that's like the teach back of the feedback conversations that we were talking about before. And so that's more about kind of programmatically. Do you also kind of feed it forward to oh, her yeah. attendings on rotations and I, that kind of situation? I keep on asking. I keep on answering a different question. I'm sorry. That's okay. You're excited about this. You we ask about... all the hard questions, Calvin. They're just keeping you on your toes. So feeding forward, the, the, the data are really, really interesting about feed forward as well. Uh, so, um, there are data from non-medical sources, I think in music schools and one other, one other kind of school where, um, where there is a big risk with feed forward because then the learner gets labeled and, uh, they don't then, then bias on behalf of the faculty and the evaluators comes into play. Um, and there also are data that suggests that if you can separate the bias from the information that that actually does help learners. There is this uh, recently a a paper published from um, deans of student affairs at three or four different schools where they went through their feed forward process. Uh, The fact that it was helpful um, and apparently a lot of other deans of student affairs didn't like that because, because of the bias that might be involved there. So we have to be really careful with a feed-forward system, uh, as long as we are very, very clear um, that we are doing this feed-forward in order to help the learner and feeding forward specific behaviors, back to you know, back to the feedback conversation we had earlier, specific behaviors, specific goals that we're working on, as opposed to you know this learner is really weak. Th- then I'm going to look at everything that learner does a- as if they're a weak learner. Um, so I think it's uh, specificity is hugely important, and uh, this orientation toward um, helping the learner, supporting the learner in the best way that we can. Those are, I think those are the cornerstones of um, uh, feed forward, and again, those reflect the definition of feedback that we talked about last time. And Calvin, I love that we have kind of dove into each phase of the um, remediation process. And in terms of the fourth phase, which, you know, after identification, clarification, intervention comes the assessment. I wonder with Lauren, like, what's the plan for or what's the typical plan for you in terms of the follow up that happens and like checking in has, have they made the steps that you asked them to make and then have we assessed their plan or the program overall? Right. Ideally, you'd have different people playing different roles in the remediation process. So you have people who identify the learner, um, and that person can also be the remediation coach. Uh, And the person or people or body who ultimately decide whether the learner succeeds or not should be different from the remediation coach. Because if the remediation coach is also in a position of power, then that's a conflict of interest. And that's I think that can uh set the learner up for failure because the learner says but I thought you were I thought you were supporting me and now you're telling me that I that I'm being dismissed that's 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 a real problem so I think this is one reason why residency programs have clinical competence committees is because it's not just one person who's making a decision it's a lot of people looking at a whole bunch of different data with 
um, oftentimes those data are um, uh, conflicting. And so how does that committee develop the judgment, not the judgmentalness, but the good judgment in order to come down with, um, with a decision that respects not only the learner's efforts, but also respects our um, contract with society, which is if somebody leaves, if somebody graduates medical school or residency, we have to we have to say that they are that they're fit to practice. And I think uh, in that uh, the episode that you had with uh, Ben Kinnear, I love that I love that episode. Where he's talking about you know sometimes th- that there's this study from Europe where. Um, a lot of people said, you know, I, 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 there are people who I wouldn't have to take care of my parents. That also, that is also um, uh, validated by another study that was done at the University of Colorado, or not just the University of Colorado. Those were the, the authors, but they surveyed lots of different programs in the United States, um, where almost I, I think eighty percent of programs said, yeah, we we graduated somebody that we shouldn't have, and that's not acceptable. So we have to we have to support our learners and we also have this contract compact with society where we have to we have to stand by every single graduate and support them and sometimes we sometimes it get, if it gets to the point where we that we have to say we really tried and that's uh, and it's not going to work well, Calvin, in the spirit of graduating kind of competent physicians, um, this might be a noob question, but do we have data that remediation works? Like, does it do what it needs to do in terms of, um, you know, helping us graduate competent physicians and ensuring that the people who are going into the world and into the workforce are the people that we'd want taking care of our family and that the remediation has been successful? It depends on what kind of data you're looking at. Um, if you're looking at randomized control trials, there are no such trials. Uh, and also, it would be it would be really hard to randomize learners who are struggling to one arm versus the other arm and see who succeeds. Because I think we have to try to support all of our learners. So there are no randomized controlled data, um, and there is there is enough variability between the various ways that various institutions. Uh, approach the students who learners who struggle that it's it, it, it it's it's very very hard to show those data now um, so so most of the data that we have data that we have um, is essentially the best we know how to do from an educational standpoint if we if we uh, maximize the best learning strategies educational strategies and educational structures for our learners. And that's, this is not just for learners who require remediation. This is for all of our learners. This is one uh, one other thing that Ben Kinnear was talking about in uh, in his episode was um, the CCC at his institution turned from looking at looking at residents and saying, uh, okay, this person really needs help, um, identify just just those people, and instead looking at how is this person succeeding. And that that frame shift is so important, not just for uh, learners requiring remediation. They're also required for everybody in med- uh, in medical health sciences, health health professions, education. So I think it's um, uh, it, it's it's proof of concept as opposed to data that say you know you get this intervention and you, and you succeed. And Calvin, you mentioned um, kind of assessment of the individual learner like Lauren herself. Uh, but at the beginning, you mentioned sort of assessment of the whole program in response to that immediate remediation issue. Can you think of an example that you'd feel comfortable sharing if something comes to the top of your head of, of a, a situation where a remediation case has actually led to changes in the broader system? There's a program that I uh, that I was helping along um, that that's cash lack like. Uh, where they were, it was a small program with with very few learners. One one of the learners uh, was having difficulty, and that had reverberations throughout the program. Because uh, if you take that learner off service, then the other 
three or four people have to cover where cover a third or a quarter of the service instead of you know taking a, a, a medical student out of a class of 160 maybe the the impact isn't so large um, and so uh, what they what they realized when they had this issue is that they didn't have the structure with which to support the learner who was struggling and they didn't have a structure by which to support the learners who were left, the, the higher performing learners. Um, and so this really brought into relief what other things they needed in order for uh, a remediation program to exist because this, is, this was not gonna be their last struggling learner. So well, I yeah, think thanks to COVID, we all got pretty deep in figuring out backup plans. So it, it was it was uh, kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, thinking about how feeding forward can increase bias, and we know that certainly there's bias in medical evaluations. And um, how do you think about remediation if you're working with? a learner who's an underrepresented in medicine or um, some other characteristic that might kind of potentially predispose them to bias? I, I think bringing in a lot of what we have said before, I, I think anybody who is in remediation already has a label on them that makes them in remediation. So a lot of the same principles that apply to any kind of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging work uh, apply here. Um, so uh, I like to think about uh, the various levels at which um, DEIB work, what what uh, influences we can bring to, um, to to learners. And I think about the intrapersonal level, the interpersonal level, and then the systemic levels. So intrapersonally, as um, as a somebody who's involved in remediation, I have to be very, very aware of whatever implicit biases I'm bringing. Uh, and sometimes that's very, very hard work and work that we are get quite resistant to. And, and I ask myself all, all the time, you know, I have this learner who's struggling and I'm having, a, I'm having a reaction to them. How much of this is because there's a characteristic about them that I am that, that, that I'm reacting against and maybe I'm not the right remediation coach or, or uh, you know, get it, getting extra help so that we can, you know, have that learner succeed. So that's intrapersonal implicit bias. Then there's the interpersonal things, which are uh, one of the things that I almost always, always lead with, uh, particularly in no, no. In every single remediation case, um, is a location of self. So a location of self statement, which says, um, you know, I am a gay Asian doctor dad, uh, and um, as uh, uh, with these identities, I know what it's like to feel excluded from society, and I also have no idea what it might be like for you as a, you know person of color um, with thus and such background. Um, and uh, I want to make certain that we have dialogue about what um, what kinds of influences there are in your life so that I have a better sense of how to help you because I want because I'm here for your success, right? So some kind of location of self-introduction with um, with a learner. Um, and then awareness about the, uh, the forces that may be affecting their performance. So stereotype threat, we already talked some about. Microaggressions, um, if, a, if a learner is uh, because of the way they look or the way they are, um, are undergoing uh, frequent, um, or even not frequent, but any microaggression whatsoever, you know, um, comments about the way they look or um, making them feel like they don't belong, then um, those are things to take into account as I'm continuing with the coaching process. And then there's the more systemic things like, you know, uh, sometimes some of our learners who have uh, marginalized identities also are 
trying to take care of their parents or their children or their families at home. Uh, and so this is, again, back to this clarification phase. What kinds of external influences are there that may be interfering with um, the possibility that this learner can devote their entire cognitive space to the practice of uh, the practice of health uh, of uh, of medicine. Well, this has been just a great framework to think about remediation, and I really appreciate how you went into kind of the nitty gritty of what that actually looks like in practice. <laughs> Are there things that you feel like we've skipped over, or important points that that you feel like we need to cover before we get to take home points? Uh, don't you think that's enough? I think that's that's. A I lot. think it's enough, but you always <laughs> I feel like more, it's so, so <laughs> it's so chewy. We have what well, we've talked about, but what are your take home points, Calvin? I feel like there's, you know, if we could solidify them. Yeah. Um, okay. So one is uh, remediation mean a couple of can mean a couple of different things. It can mean a, a person who's struggling a little bit, or, or somebody who is needing a formal remediation plan. Uh, and obviously, there's a continuum there. Uh, the second one is um, uh, identification, clarification, intervention, assessment, that rubric. I like to think of it as IDCIA. <laughs> it's like, and I, I think of CIA not as the Central Intelligence Agency, but as the Culinary Institute of America, where we're trying to identify things to help people become more delectable and delicious in their careers. <laughs> Remediation Love feedback that. on steroids. Um, uh, the different roles of the people involved in remediation. So somebody who's identifying the learner, the remediation coach, and then a separate arbiter uh, where they're able to take a whole bunch of different information, put it together, and make an ultimate uh, uh, defensible uh, decision. Uh, and then uh, documentation. If, if you're in that remediation phase, documentation, 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 and uh, institutions are supported, at least in the US, by uh, court decisions that, uh, as long as due process is held, don't, don't worry so much about this, don't worry so much about the lawsuits, just do your job. Wonderful. Nailed it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Anything else that you'd like to plug? Anything that uh, you have coming down the pipeline or in addition to your book, anything else that you're especially proud of? I was going to say, another funny you should Another do's and don'ts article. Yeah. What was that? <laughs> Is that another do's and don'ts article, like uh, the ones that you, from 2019? Yeah, um, th that th I, I love doing that article. And th there was so, th it's interesting that article came out in 2019. And since then, I've learned so much more about remediation, a lot of which is in the in the book that's uh, going to be coming out end of August, September 2023. Um, uh, so th that's exciting, and it's interesting, you know, n now that I've had to read through that book and read through the book and read through the book. Uh, even after that, there are new things that are in the literature that aren't in the book. So it's you know it's an ongoing, evolving field, uh, and the idea that. Um, we can continue to learn. There's nothing that has refuted anything in the book. It's just, you know, um, additional detail that has been really helpful to reflect on. So um, it's, it's, it's an exciting place to be. I, I would say that remediation is such a, um, it's, it's such a labor of love. It's uh, a, a way to really support our learners who need us the most. And it, it, it really gives me a lot of joy to see the folks um, succeed at the end. Calvin, I love that. Thank you Everyone so much. This has been great. Book. <laughs> yes. Thank you for all your time. I you know, like, talk, talk to your ears off. It's amazing. Ears are still on. Don't worry. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for this. Calvin, this was great. Well, Ira, that was such a wonderful conversation with Dr. Joe. I was really happy that we got to sit down with him and really learn so much about remediation. What do you want to take home from this episode? 
Wow, Molly, I don't even know where to start because there's so much, but I think within the four phases of remediation, so identification, clarification, intervention, and assessment, I want to hone in on assessment because I feel like Calvin really taught me kind of the layers of it where it's not just the assessment of the learning plan or the program within uh, that the learner is kind of working within and learning within, but also I feel like there's this assessment of self and kind of how am I contributing to this process, also kind of how am I locating myself and thinking about kind of inclusivity and um, kind of identity throughout this process. So I feel like I really um, got a lot out of that assessment piece. What about you, Molly? What's your take home? I really liked how Calvin focused on uh, really tailoring the remediation plan to the specific competency that's lacking. And, you know, kind of his example of it's easy to say that people are having trouble with uh communication, but then it's really a medical knowledge issue or vice versa. And so that we as educators need to be mindful of, of really trying to figure out what is what is the problem because we can't help our learners succeed without identifying that correctly. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support for this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to the team at Podpace for editing our audio. Also to our social media team, Andrew Delat on Instagram and John Ong on Twitter. Uh, until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiglein. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. And I'm Dr. Ira Krasinovskaya. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.